let's all uh, get started here. Um, welcome everybody to today's talk. I'll introduce it in just a second after a couple of um, notes on future upcoming talks. We have a newly announced one uh, this Friday, November 19th from 2 to 3.30 on Patriots and War Profiteers, America's Uncomfortable Relationship with Its Defense Industry. And the speaker is someone who ought to know. He's Andy Hove with 35 years of experience in the defense industry and numerous other posts. Uh, he's really been around and whatever your views are in the military industrial complex, come and uh, get sorted out on that talk. So that's this Friday, November 19th, 2 to 3.30 in B101 Jenkins Nanovic. And then we have uh, coming up on November 30th, Bear Braumuller, very uh, famous political scientist from Ohio State University the Ohio State University is from University of Chicago in Michigan. And his talk is going to be on what can systemic trends in warfare tell us about the future. And it's basically a critique of the decline of war thesis, which is certainly good for our business. Um, so we very much look forward to that. And that's Tuesday, November 30th, our normal time, 4.30 to 6 at 10.30 Jenkins Nanovic. So that's Bear Braumuller, November 30th at uh, 10.30 Jenkins Nanovic, 4.30 p.m. But our highlight is today, Joita Sarkar is here from uh, Boston's University Pardue School, Pardee School of Global Studies, where she teaches diplomatic and political history. She's published in uh, numerous locations, including Journal of Cold War Studies, Cold War History, International History Review, Journal of Strategic Studies, and it goes on and on and on. Her first book uh, recently is forthcoming from Cornell University Press on plowshares and shares, uh, swords and plowshares and swords, India's nuclear program and the global Cold War. And she's very experienced educationally as well. She's got uh, a master's from Paris 4 Sorbonne, and she has her PhD from the Graduate Institute Geneva in Switzerland. And she's had two fellowships at Harvard and a fellowship at Dartmouth. And her second book is also the title of today's uh, talk, which is Lightwater Capitalism, Nonproliferation and US Global Power. So it's a look at nonproliferation efforts through the histories of capitalism, empire and decolonization. So not an angle we typically get. Uh, so we're very, very, look, very much looking forward to Jay's talk. Um, Thank you very much for uh, being here remotely and big round of applause uh, to Jay for coming. Thank you. Take it away. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Dan, for that kind introduction. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for having me. I am excited to be here uh, at the International Security Center at Notre Dame, even though it's virtually really thrilled uh, to see you all and to present my, my new book project. The title, uh, as Dan had already said, is Lightwater Capitalism, uh, Non-Proliferation and U.S. Global Power. Um, did you know that U.S. non-proliferation policy has a compelling economic logic outside of sanctions? As far as the received wisdom goes, um, we understand U.S. nonproliferation policy uh, predominantly as a, as a U.S. national security uh, act, goal, even processes. Um, it is evident, for example, in the ongoing uh, U.S. opposition to Iran's possession of nuclear weapons across 
multiple U.S. administrations. Past concerns of U.S. policymakers for a French bomb, a Chinese bomb, an Indian bomb, and even in the 1980s, an Islamic bomb, which you can see uh, from 1984 Herblock cartoon uh, published in Washington Post. Uh, the ultimate goal of U.S. nonproliferation is to keep the number of countries that possess their own nuclear weapons as low as possible for the national security interest of the United States government and those of its allies. I don't dispute this goal in my book and it also in generally, um, but I ask that we take some distance from the goal and pay closer attention to the processes of US non-proliferation efforts. Because when we do that, the significance of economic strategies, economic actors uh, become quite clear. Without taking into consideration the role of businesses and banks and their close relationship with the federal government, we are missing out on a better understanding of the workings of non-proliferation for much of the Cold War. In the existing scholarship that we have in uh, non-proliferation and proliferation, we rarely understand these two phenomena in terms of the global atomic marketplace, its controls, its choke points. And so we don't really hear much about um, actors like the GE or Westinghouse or, or Bechtel uh, and their networks, although uh, these actors and their networks are intrinsic to both the processes of proliferation as well as the policy tools and mechanisms of non-proliferation. Over the past decade or so, um, several historical works have been published on US non-proliferation policy. And as you can see from my slide, I'm talking about historiography and not literature review. So that's a giveaway that I'm a historian. So um, take it with a pinch of salt. Um, so uh, over the past decade or so, uh, we can, we, we can, if you look at the, 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 the scholarship published um, on non-proliferation, I think we can categorize or classify them into three uh, broad strands. First is, uh, as you might imagine, the Frank Gavin School, that US commitment to non-proliferation has been robust to the point that non-proliferation can be considered as a part of the US grand strategy. That's his IS article from 2015 and his book by Brookings, uh, I think this last year. Um, the second strand disagrees with the first, uh, and it's really uh, th these authors like Rabinowitz, uh, like James Cameron, like Thomas Cavana, uh, they highlight the various exceptions and exemptions undertaken by US policymakers uh, when geopolitical interests triumphed over non-proliferation. Non and so they claim that. Uh, there are so many exceptions and exemptions, is it really part of grand strategy, right? Um, the third is uh, scholars like John Krieger has published this book, uh, MIT Press, uh, Sharing Knowledge Shaping Europe. And uh, he asks us to foreground the role of technology. He doesn't talk much about economic actors, but uh, the point is that we need to understand non-proliferation policy itself better. We don't know enough. That's what um, the third strand uh, tends to um, emphasize on, in my understanding. Now, I would argue that the first two strands are not really to be pitted against each other, uh, as they currently seem to be in, 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 in the literature, uh, because they have a major similarity. And that similarity is that they have a common assumption that, um, that U.S. capability for non-proliferation has been constant over time. And I say that because there is 
it, it is implicit, the assumption is implicit um, in, and, in their, and is clear in their explicit claim that when US policymakers intend to prevent proliferation, they succeed, uh, which means that US government capability to prevent proliferation is held constant over time. Now, historically, that is inaccurate. And um, what I have tried to do in my, in my book is that uh, I, I integrate the role of businesses with the government, the state, with the society, and the economic, with the political, and the diplomatic. And my goal is to explain the transformation of US non-proliferation policy. Pardon me, so sorry, how did this happen? Um, it's, my, it's a teaching day, it's my alarm to go to class. Um, apologize for that. Um, where was I? So yes, so with this book, Lightwater Capitalism, um, I, my, my goal is to explain the transformation of US non-proliferation policy through the rise and fall of US global power understood as US economic and technological preponderance with respect to light water reactors. And that's why it's light water capitalism because it's about light water reactors. Uh, and so this book is about the changing economic realities of global atomic marketplace with reference to the export of US light water reactors and what that can tell us about non-proliferation efforts uh, from the 1970s, uh, from the 1950s uh, to the 1970s. Um, so what I do is I integrate um, uh, the, the various US firms, uh, government agencies, and the Export Import Bank. Uh, and I, and I, and I try to demonstrate how these actors within the United States are stakeholders in US non-proliferation uh, through their export, through their role in the export of light water reactors. Um, as you might imagine, uh, we are in our 20th month of this pandemic. Um, so this research was expected to be way more advanced um, than it is right now. So it's a work in progress and the archives that you see that are in gray are the ones that I still need to visit. So hopefully early 2022, fingers crossed. Um, so perhaps I could walk you through the, the argument, uh, the arguments, the two main arguments that I make um, in this book. And that is um, first I argue uh, that the US government's proactive role in preventing proliferation worldwide is in fact intrinsically related to its goal to promote interests of US businesses by securing and protecting markets abroad. Uh, US light water reactors uh, created what I call techno-economic dependence of recipient countries on the United States and thus served non-proliferation interests. Now, of course, I need to explain uh, what is this techno-economic dependence? What does that mean? Um, first, as more and more countries sought nuclear assistance through what is called one, two, three agreements, they still exist today um, because this act, 1954 US Atomic Energy Act still exists today. Um, so as more and more countries sought nuclear assistance through these one, two, three agreements, uh, US private firms like Westinghouse, GE, Bechtel obtained the actual contracts, made large financial gains. So that's, that's obvious, like that's, that's not that counterintuitive or, or, or surprising. Uh, what we tend not to pay attention to is that the second point, and that is it opened up the opportunity to lock in these new markets in the American reactor model, which was the light water reactor fueled by low enriched uranium. And we're gonna spend some time on this technology just a little bit um, because it's, it's important. 
And uh, light water reactors are fueled by low enriched uranium. Um, if the recipient country is going to enrich their own uranium, then they're gonna become Iran. In other, in other, in other words, a country that is a proliferation threat, right? So the idea is that whoever, whichever country buys light water reactors will always also import the reactor fuel. Um, and as we know, as, it, as tends to be the case with um, technical assistance, uh, wherever US technology is involved, they tend to be turnkey, right? So there's also this, con this continuous dependence on the United States government and business actors uh, for, uh, uh, for spare parts, for example and how to operate, uh, for instance. Um, you, you may be um, curious that I, I mentioned Bechtel quite a few times. Um, Bechtel is not really a nuclear company, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a construction company, it's more like an infrastructure giant. Um, the reason Bechtel uh, has always been very involved in the nuclear business while being a non-nuclear company per se, in my book, I say, there is nothing called a nuclear company. If there's a nuclear company, they're probably going to go bankrupt um, because uh, they need to make money in other ways than nuclear because it's just not profitable. Um, anyway, but Bechtel is, has always been a key player in the nuclear realm is because uh, U.S. reactor exports are turnkey. So GE provides um, the, the reactor technology and Bechtel builds it, right? Um, now, from the point of view of the second argument about locking in, this means that uh, the recipient country is getting locked in in, in more ways than one. Um, and as I said, low enriched uranium fuel, meaning that uh, they can't really enrich their own uranium. If they do, it's a proliferation threat of the sanctions, right? Okay. Um, the third uh, point about techno-economic dependence is uh, the United States government offered large loans from the Export-Import Bank or the US aid, depend, depending on which, which country was in question, uh, to finance these large reactor projects, to in, entice the recipients on the one hand and to tackle competition by other suppliers on the other. Um, and thereby the recipient countries would remain subservient to US financial interests, both in the short and in the long run. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, a prime example from, the, from my time period, because I said I'm a historian, so I, I, I dwell the Cold War. Um, a prime example is uh, the Indian case, the US-India agreement for two light water reactors built by um, Bechtel, but by GE. Um, here in this case, we find that it was really the USAID loan of 71.8 million to India to build these two reactors that had about 7.5% interest that did not require any principal repayment until after eight, 10 years. Uh, and that was significant in terms of swaying the Indian Atomic Energy Commission. The chairman is on the stamp on the, on the slide here, Homi Pava, uh, because the, the Indian Atomic Energy Commission, notably Homi Pava's preference was the French reactors because they were unsafeguarded and they also matched India's technological uh, preferences in terms of they were looking for, <clears throat> pardon me, plutonium producing reactors uh, because they wanted to keep the proliferation pathway open. But what really swayed uh, the Indian Atomic Energy Commission towards light water reactors uh, was the large USAID um, uh, loan that was provided. And here you see this uh, telegram. This is one of the several telegrams where uh, US ambassador John K. Galbraith uh, makes a very strong case uh, for these two reactors for non-proliferation. And he says here that, you know, China will set up a nuclear explosion anytime. This is January 63, China tests in October 64. 
China was set of a nuclear explosion and India with her prestige, we have to do something. And so this plant provides them the opportunity. So it, it really helps us connect uh, with the business side of things, with the government side of things together in terms of non-proliferation towards this, what was considered at this point a, a potential proliferation case, that is India. Um, the second uh, major argument is, is this, and that is a change in US economic position in the atomic marketplace uh, influenced non-proliferation policy outcomes. Uh, and that is change in the US economic position in terms of market share um, from monopoly supplier to a major supplier. Um, what this means is that um, President Eisenhower's 1953 Adams for Peace proposal and its policy outcomes like the IAEA and the Euratom and Nixon Ford administration's efforts to form the nuclear suppliers group in the 70s represent US efforts to first capture the reactor market to establish US position as the monopoly supplier in the 50s and then in the 70s to regain economic leverage by controlling exports of other major suppliers. So the exact nature and character of these two multilateral mechanisms are different. 1950s is opening up the market and then controlling the market for the NPT, uh, right about 65 to 70, uh, that time period. And then 74, 75 onward, uh, preventing other suppliers from, uh, from really getting much of the market. And other suppliers in this case are the French, um, the Canadians, um, the West Germans to an extent, and later on the Soviets. Um, okay. Now, the, the 1950s, uh, the, the Adams for Peace speech, which is uh, quite well known, I, I believe, among IR scholars and historians, uh, the Adams for Peace speech that President Eisenhower gave at the UN General Assembly, uh, uh, this, this heralded a new era. And this era was distinct from wartime secrecy that shrouded uh, nuclear technologies during the Manhattan Project, uh, because this was the first time that the US government was encouraging the global spread of nuclear technologies for civilian purposes. And this meant that uh, US private firms were finally allowed to enter the nuclear marketplace in their own right instead of merely being contractors of the US government as they had been during the Manhattan Project and thereafter. Um, as a consequence of Adams for Peace, large amounts of information as a result were declassified uh, through the 1954 US Atomic Energy Act, uh, which was an amendment to the 1946 Act. Now, prior to this, prior to the 54 Act, uh, the 1946 Act that you have here on the slide, also called the McMahon Act, uh, had retained wartime secrecy surrounding information related to nuclear technologies, even after the end of the Second World War. Um, this post-war information censorship uh, was aimed at maintaining American technological superiority um, uh, by preventing other industrially advanced countries from catching up with the United States. Um, and uh, this, was, uh, this was an act that was also unpopular with a Manhattan Project partners like the Canadians and the British. Um, so with the 1954 Act, uh, we find that uh, this whole uh, post-war uh, secrecy regime in the nuclear domain uh, is really discarded. And, uh, and uh, un un not very surprisingly, we find that uh, this bill is, is introduced into the Congress in about June 54, 
um, and then is uh, signed into law by the president on August 30th, 1954. And so it really passed very, very smoothly. And by it, I mean the US Atomic Energy Bill or the amendment uh, to the act. Now, um, Adams for Peace proposal is often uh, understood as Ike's classic psychological warfare in the Cold War, like a propaganda tool. Um, where uh, on the one hand, uh, the, the, the administration was talking about Adams for Peace, but at the same time, US nuclear arsenal was increasing uh, by, by several folds. Um, what I find in my research is that Adams for Peace um, not only put a positive spin on these technologies of war, but also deliberately carved out a space uh, for the United States to become the monopoly supplier of nuclear technologies in the world. And, um, I would say monopoly supplier of nuclear technology in the, in the free world, meaning the non-communist world. Um, so 1954, Atomic Energy Act Section 123 that you've already been introduced to invited bilateral agreements with the United States government in non-military nuclear technologies. Um, and uh, between 1955 and 1957, there were already 43 of these agreements uh, that have already been signed. And this is even before the IAEA uh, negotiation had been uh, uh, really signed or, or, or there has been a functioning uh, civilian power reactor um, that's, that's, that existed. Uh, there wasn't, but all these agreements had already been signed in anticipation. Um, outside the United States, um, the, the first UN conference on peaceful use of atomic energy had the Palais des Nations in Geneva, August 55, was chaired by Humi Pava, who you met a few slides ago. Um, who was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. Um, and this, this conference and the conferences thereafter, the 55, 58, 64, 70, uh, were, were really large international fairs or trade fairs, um, a meeting point of buyers, sellers, and creditors to really whet the appetite of countries uh, to establish, to help them establish nuclear energy programs. Um, so, uh, so, so it could be, it could facilitate um, businesses and then also bring in U.S. government aid and thereby over time ser serve U.S. non-proliferation goals. Now, I'm gonna skip this because uh, I can get to the Eurotom and the Q&A if there are questions, but let's move on in the interest of time. Um, um, under the Eisenhower administration, uh, light water reactors uh, became the preferred American model uh, for domestic and foreign consumption. And the reason was that uh, here you see uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover. Uh, he, had been, uh, he had been working at the US Navy on these reactors and Westinghouse was already building naval reactors that would power submarines uh, and ships for the US Navy. And so the choice of technology for light water reactors were determined by portability and limitations of size of naval reactors. So in early 1953, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission's uh, chairman, Lee Strauss, uh, who was an avid supporter for uh, supporter of the commercial exploitation of the atom, uh, he commissioned Westinghouse to build a small um, a, a small prototype power reactor that you see here on the slides in Shippingport, um, Pennsylvania, uh, which reached criticality in '57. Uh, so around the same time as the IAEA or the International Atomic Energy Agency's negotiation of a statute had, had taken place and the IAEA had been just established in Vienna. Um, so, and, the, um, and so 
um, at the beginning, uh, so in the very early, early on, it's really Westinghouse's pressurized water reactors was the model. And it's only a bit later that General Electric's boiling water type light water reactor entered the frame. Um, in terms of the negotiation of the IAEA statute, we find that um, the IAEA's creation uh, helped establish uh, a ready marketplace. And so uh, the developing countries, well, first continental Europe, and then the developing countries became markets uh, for US firms at a time when domestic market was largely uncertain uh, because nuclear energy was very new. Uh, you just saw in the previous slide, a uh, shipping port, um, the prototype power reactor had just uh, become functional or operational or reached criticality, more technical term, in 57. So um, the, 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 um, um, the uh, utility providers, pardon me, uh, were very, um, uncomfortable, even suspicious of nuclear energy. Uh, they, they were not really that willing to engage in uh, power reactors and what that would mean. And so domestic market was largely uncertain at this point. And so this, the IAEA statute creating, creates this possibility that nuclear energy could be anywhere. Any country can really participate and create an, a nuclear energy program, uh, create, help craft a marketplace in the first place. Second is uh, that, uh, still in the 1950s here, is that the Manhattan Project uh, created the possibility for not just uh, the United States to have reactor technologies. Um, the UK developed its own gas graphite reactor model and the Canadians had their own, the CANDU type. And so very early on, it became very clear that uh, uh, the, the light water reactor will have contenders and there'll be competition from the Manhattan Project partners. So there needed to be something else to make sure that US light water reactor model was going to become the model. And here the role of the Exim Bank or the Export Import Bank becomes really important because what really changes the minds of many, if not most recipient countries is that they don't have to pay right away. Um, so for example, Homi Pava, who you saw in a few slides, uh, a few slides back, uh, was very opposed to safeguards. Um, that is adopting any kind of safeguards to prevent diversion of technologies from civilian to military ends. And the only reason he accepted the US offer is because everybody in India was complaining that uh, his Atomic Energy Commission that he's been leading from the very beginning wasn't producing any electricity. And so he thought, well, I don't have to pay for these power reactors and they're gonna produce electricity. So all the critics are going to shut up. Uh, and so there are all these really fascinating uh, stories where we find that light water reactor model was not the, re the reactor model, but the financial dimension uh, changed uh, decisions for many of the recipients in favor of the model over time serving US non-proliferation goals. Um, so I have about 15 minutes roughly um, in my 45 minute uh, allocation of time. So let me uh, move to the 1970s very quickly, and I can pause for the 60s, you know, during the q and I'll spend, I'll spend more time if you want me to. Um, so in contrast to the 1950s, the 1970s posed, uh, uh, posed a set of challenges. Uh, first of all, the NPT had just entered into force, signed in 68, entered into force in 1970, um, and it had not been ratified by several threshold states or states that are countries that were considered to be very close to developing nuclear weapons, like West Germany, like Japan. Um, and so uh, there were quite a lot of concern as to, you know, how effective this treaty was going to be. 
Um, second is this, this, this grand bargain of the NPT, the Article 4, uh, was all about market expansion, especially in countries that had just uh, become independent and therefore they are economically uh, impoverished. And many of those countries embarked in large infrastructure projects for national development who found nuclear energy very attractive. Um, what we perhaps pay less attention to in the 1970s uh, is that this is a time when there, there is then there is the beginning of the decline of US economic power uh, and, and the consequent need of, of US policymakers to rally the support of European allies for an interconnected international economic order. Um, so I argue that this, uh, this, this, this in many ways drove the logic of the nuclear suppliers group uh, because the 1970s exemplified the limitations of American global power on multiple fronts, not least economic. Um, post-war economic, um, post-war economic recovery of allies like uh, those in Western Europe and Japan, and the consequent competition with U.S. economy, the growth of multinational businesses, and the rising cost of the Vietnam War, had strained the U.S. economy to the point that uh, in 1971, um, the economic strains uh, culminated in what was known as the Nixon shock. Uh, that terminated the Bretton Woods uh, monetary system of dollar convertibility to gold and ended um, the era of fixed uh, currency rates. Uh, and thereby ending this liberal international economic orders, this, this Keynesian consensus and creating this moment of shift that historians had written a lot about. Um, so I don't wanna get in too much into that, but uh, focusing on US economic decline and what that meant for the atomic marketplace is really my goal. Um, so this, co this collapse, um, the, the Bretton Woods system of dollar convertibility to gold, I mean. This collapse was soon followed by the 1973 um, oil price shock that led to energy shortages in the United States and uh, Western Europe and, and several other countries that depended on oil supplies. Uh, and as a result, we, we, we confronted this, uh, uh, this world where there were these competing factors, uh, pro-exports, so factors that uh, that encouraged export of nuclear reactors, the nuclear energy, um, and uh, and factors that uh, encouraged control uh, of uh, or like preventing exports. Uh, one was the oil price shock and increasing demand for nuclear energy as an alternative source of energy um, than oil. Uh, second is that uh, the decline in domestic demand in many of the supplier countries, like the French, the West Germans, the Canadians, and also the United States, um, leading to firms looking for markets abroad more than ever. Uh, and as a consequence of the second point that the US we find is, is losing its market share to other suppliers that, um, that, that are more uh, proactively competing. And this is the time when we find the French and the West Germans are doing something very similar to the Americans and that is a high amount of uh, government funding um, is, is really what is uh, encouraging the South Koreans or the Argentinians to, to buy West German or French um, than American. Uh, Pro-controls factors, perhaps more known to my IR scholars, and that is uh, uh, here in the audience, and that is India's nuclear uh, explosion or India's nuclear uh, test of May 1974, leading to uh, increased US non-proliferation initiatives one was encouraging countries to ratify the NPT, and the other was the nuclear suppliers group. Now, um, what I find is that uh, that security concerns of 
pre that is preventing another India, that is preventing other countries from accessing technology from the global atomic marketplace and putting together a nuclear device. That's exactly what India did. So preventing another India was not the only driving force behind US interest in strengthening the non-proliferation regime. Uh, it was also aimed at, um, aimed at uh, leveling the playing field uh, for US companies that were facing stiff competition from their European counterparts. So here we find um, in the, by the mid 1970s, uh, the United States was no longer the monopoly supplier of civilian nuclear assistance in the non-communist world. Um, France and West Germany were proving to be tough competitors. Um, the United States was also was, was still the dominant nuclear supplier, as you can see. It's certainly a higher share than West Germans or the French, but it's it's no longer how it was, 84% to 50%. Um, so it was very clear the US, uh, the monopoly that it once enjoyed, and that is over. It's a major supplier, but no longer a monopoly supplier in the stiff competition from uh, where the West Germans and the French are really selling also same technology as the United States, light water reactors. How did they get it? Through license sharing, Westinghouse, Framatom, Westinghouse, uh, Kraftwerk Union. Um, so this brings me to the, let's skip this. Um, this brings me to the National Security Decision Memorandum of June, 1974 that noted, um, this is from the Nixon administration, uh, that noted the increased availability of weapons usable materials uh, from the growth and dissemination of nuclear power industries, and that it required a policy review by the US government in consultation with countries that were present or potential suppliers of materials, technology, and equipment. Um, Henry Kissinger, uh, who played a very important role uh, in the NSG, uh, and, and his role has, is, is becoming very prominent in the historical scholarship on the NSG. Uh, I find that during 74, 76, Kissinger adopted measures to undercut the economic leverage of the suppliers on the one hand and aided the US nuclear industry on the other. Uh, within months of India's nuclear test of May, 1974, uh, the United States embarked on a policy coordination approach um, through formation of the NSG or the London Suppliers Group, uh, because those, those meetings were taking place in London. Um, and at the same time, the Nixon administration offered light water reactors to Israel, Egypt, and China. Um, two of these were not signatories to the NPT, meaning Israel and the PRC or China, uh, and they had no immediate intent uh, to join the treaty. Uh, in March 75, as uh, supplier states were about to meet in London uh, for the NSG meetings, uh, the Ford administration began exploring the sale of uh, several light water reactors to oil-rich ally Iran. Um, it, was only, um, it was only Israeli indifference. The Israelis did not want light water reactors because they, they felt that this was going to be sort of a, uh, a backdoor um, way to ask for inspections of the Dimona reactor. So Israelis were indifferent and the, Iran the Egyptians were very eager, um, but that did not uh, impress the Nixon and then the Ford administration because it had to be a dual deal. Um, so Israeli indifference and Iranian revolution halted these reactor exports. Uh, in the non-proliferation crisis of the 1970s, uh, Kissinger saw ripe uh, economic opportunities for U.S. Uh, private firms, uh, Westinghouse, GE, and others, and pushed for U.S. light water reactors. 
Now, selling light water reactors also require beating out competitors uh, wherever possible. And India's nuclear explosion that had used plutonium from the Canadian reactor that you see on the slide here, that's the Canadian reactor, the Cyrus. Um, India's nuclear explosion created this opportunity uh, for um, Kissinger and really the US uh, nuclear industry uh, to, uh, to, to, to call Kandu a proliferation prone technology. And so we find that for recipient states, even though the Kandu reactor had the advantage of natural uranium as fuel and thereby not nearly that much dependence on the supplier, um, we find that uh, the Nixon and Ford administration directly warned countries uh, from importing candle reactors and that really alarmed uh, the Canadian uh, nuclear industry. Um, the Ford administration came close to beating out the candle reactor sales out of South Korea and Argentina in the 1970s, calling these reactors uh, really bad for non-proliferation, in other words, really proliferation prone and putting pressures uh, on, on, the, on the recipients to not buy can-do because there would be consequences uh, otherwise. Um, so in other words, uh, what I find is that uh, this US loss of market share um, in, in reactor exports non-communist world uh, uh, was a driving factor for US policymakers to adopt uh, multilateral export control measures, which as a mechanism, as I had said at the beginning, is very different from IAEA, IAEA and PT is about spread. It's about spreading the market. market export control by its very definition is about controlling the market uh, by preventing other suppliers from selling um, on grounds of non-proliferation. And so uh, this can at least partially explain the non-proliferation outcomes of the era, uh, the nuclear suppliers group, and for that, the Zanger Committee. Um, so I'm going to end with uh, three implications. And uh, I remember when at the beginning, when uh, Professor Lindley introduced me, uh, he mentioned decolonization and uh, debt and all of that. And all of that is in my book, but I wanted to um, gear this presentation to a mostly a political science slash multidisciplinary audience. And so you didn't hear a lot about decolonization. I'm happy to go into that during the Q&A. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with the three implications that I find would appeal to you as well as to me as a historian, uh, is that uh, I, what I'm trying to do with this book is that um, I'd like to highlight the role of incentives in US non-proliferation policy and, and really uh, bring from history several instances where policy policymakers have adopted a variety of tools beyond coercion, beyond coercion of various kinds, military and financial, beyond sanctions, like we, um, the, 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 the Cold War um, repertoire um, is really full of so many instances where policymakers have been very creative on solving non-proliferation, at least for the time being. And we need to understand those cases so that we, we ourselves can be more creative in solving non-proliferation challenges of the present and the future. Uh, so the role of incentives, something I'm really interested in. Um, second is, uh, as you could tell, techno-economic dependence uh, brings me to the second implication, and that is uh, United States technological and financial preponderance is absolutely necessary for non-proliferation success. And uh, what and right now uh, that that could be other kinds of technology, and that's something that perhaps we can brainstorm during the Q and A. What does the U.S. have a technological edge in, and can that serve? non-proliferation and perhaps counter-proliferation goals. Um, so tech and financial preponderance is really uh, the key to non-proliferation success because that is when 
U.S. policies were succeeding and, and attaining non-proliferation goals. And the 70s onward, things got very, very uh, messy. Um, third is uh, that uh, business-government relations are really important in international security. I think most of us understand that, but um, all of our disciplines have various kinds of silos. Uh, I teach diplomatic and political history, and I find that we don't really talk to business historians and historians of capitalism. When I ask my IR scholars, uh, IR friends, uh, they also say the security studies and IPE, it's, it's a bit different. Um, so I, this is because I know various students are also here and uh, mid-level junior uh, scholars. So I think, you know, for us, for the next uh, kind of scholarship, we just need to break these silos and uh, really engage uh, proactively with, uh, with the economic dimension and bring, bring to the fore uh, new kinds of understanding of you know, uh, whether it's non-proliferation or there's something else. And so with that, I'm going to stop sharing and I think I stuck to my time. Uh, thank you very much once again for your attention and I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you very much for such a great talk. Um, let me just tell everybody how this is gonna work. You can ask a question by unmuting and unmuting your video as well as your sound and just go ahead and ask a question. If things get unruly, we can always go back to the old system of raise your hand for just asking a question under the reactions tab. Also under the reactions tab, if you have a two finger, which means your point is right on point and you wanna leap ahead of anybody in front of you, uh, hit the thumbs up button uh, under the reactions tab. But let me um, start with a question that might help orient the discussion a little bit. Why do we care about light water versus heavy water reactors in the proliferation game? Uh, sort of a a question that went un, unanswered. Um, why do we care about these different types of reactors? What's the proliferation strategy? How have views changed over the years on the benefits of light water reactors? Yeah, uh, thanks Thanks very much, Dan, for that excellent question. Yeah, it'll, it'll help clarify a lot of things. Um, um, I, I explained a little bit about light water reactors. So let me explain heavy water reactor because that's gonna explain the whole proliferation dimension of it. Um, heavy water reactors, for example, can do type reactor is a heavy water reactor. Gas graphite reactor which is a British model um, is also a heavy water type reactor and they produce plutonium as a byproduct. Uh, and plutonium is a direct pathway to the bomb. So if, if, a, if a potential, uh, um, uh, proliferator country has a plutonium reprocessing plant, um, then they can reprocess that plutonium from the heavy water reactor uh, and reprocess it to 90%, make it weapon grade, and then put together a device, which is exactly what India did. Uh, and they did it with the heavy water reactor, which was the Cyrus reactor that you saw on the, on the uh, on, 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 uh, I think it was one of my slides. Um, the difference with light water is that uh, that the whole idea of light water reactor is that the, the there, there there would be the I, that the recipient will be getting the uh, the fuel from outside and in most cases uh, there there would also be an understanding that um, that the spent fuel from that light water reactor will be taken away by the United States or somebody else uh, somebody else meaning a country that has nuclear weapons is not considered to be an, to be a proliferation concern. And so uh, because of the whole mechanism um, of the light water reactor where there is more controls and more interventions from the supplier side, um, th that would prevent uh, proliferation. Whereas a heavy water reactor, because of this plutonium as a byproduct, uh, creates uh, concerns about 
proliferation. But thank you for that question. Yep, thank you very much. Anybody who wants to ask a question, just uh, unmute your video and audio and, and go ahead. Okay. Um, th that was an interesting talk. I enjoyed your paper. I found th this is all interesting. You make a very compelling case, but everything you've, well, I, I saw in your article, no dollar figures. And I think you only gave $1 figure in your talk today. You have percentages, the declining uh, percentages of, of US sales. And so I'll, for lack of a better term, I'll call it the Dr. Evil problem, and that's this. Are we talking $1 million, $1 billion, or obviously more? What are we talking, $50 billion, $100 billion? Because I think that would have a big impact on how we weigh your arguments. If this is a huge part of US exports, and eventually French exports, German exports, and so on, we can really I think it's much easier to accept the arguments you've made. If it's a small part of, of the economy, then how do we, so do you have a sense of that? Can you give us a sense as to the significance um, of this industry to the US and others that would lead to you know, such competition that you change strategic goals and thinking and so on? Thank you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an excellent question, Fritz. Um, so in terms of, so I, I had some, some, um, some data in terms of the ex Export-Import Bank. So I'm, I'm drawing most of my information in terms of how much aid the, uh, the, the United States government is providing for these reactor exports uh, through the figures of the Export-Import Bank archives in Washington, DC. And so um, that's where I'm getting my most of my information from. Um, so when you're asking for dollar figures, I think the question is, um, you know, what, what, what exactly are we trying to measure here? Um, in, uh, what, what's, uh, what's that about? Because if you look at specific reactor exports, whether it's to India, whether it's to Mexico, whether it's to Spain, for example, uh, th those th those aids are, are large amounts of money. They, they are in the millions and the billions. Uh, and the reason is very simple that reactors are very expensive. Um, and uh, if, if the, for India, it was 71.8 million for two reactors. Uh, one of the reasons Spain, uh, Franco's Spain became bankrupt uh, in the 80s was really all the money they owed to uh, GE and Westinghouse for the reactor pro. Uh, projects and it was all all about the export import bank loans that they just couldn't uh, pay uh, and the nuclear dimension was really what you know crumbled to the, the I mean it was definitely mismanagement of various kinds but a large part of that was all that money that they owed um, so the point I'm trying to make is I it's it's uh, my question to you I guess to help me clarify as I develop my project and I would like to make a stronger case, uh, I don't want to have a Dr. Eagle problem, uh, is that uh, what, are, what are we measuring? And I think from my perspective, it's important that these reactor projects are very expensive. And so any reactor would be about $35 million, roughly in the 60s. And, uh, and then so two would be 70 million. And the more reactors that the, U the U.S. government sells, uh, there would be greater in greater dependence of these countries on U.S. government. In this, in this case, the Export Import Bank or USA, depending on how the aid uh, agreements have been uh, made with the country in concern. And so, 
um, when I see that, I find that the recipient countries have huge amount of debt that they're unable to pay off. And they probably have no one else to blame but themselves because sometimes they're perverse incentives, like the Indian case where the, 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 the chairman just wanted reactors that would work. Um, and uh, that's why he accepted the US offer. And uh, the nuclear enterprise of India doesn't produce much electricity even today, for example. So I think that that's my question. So my, my, my data is from the Export Import Bank uh, in terms of what they're giving. And I would say as reactor share uh, or the market share of reactor exports of the United, United States, uh, US companies is falling, the Export Import Bank's uh, support was increasing. So um, I, I don't think I had it on my slide, uh, but I could take that conversation offline. So um, that's something I find that as, as the reactor share is falling, the Export Import Bank really doubles down on how much and how proactively they push. And so anyway, so I, I would like to hear from you in terms of um, what, what, what I'm measuring is how much dependence there is from these companies. But I think what you are asking for is what part of the US, how much, of the, how much share of the US economy is involved. And I think we are probably trying to measure different things. Well, actually to, to, to get to a, a better appreciation of your argument, both sides of this equation are multiple. There actually, there's more than that. You know, there's actually several axes, I suppose we could say. And, and you can look from the U.S. perspective, and that is how many, what, what is this, what percentage of U.S. exports is this? How many workers are tied to the industry and so on and so forth? But you are very much right. You do have to look then at the other side. And what is it that the countries that are acquiring this, what kind of costs are they going to be facing? What kind of loans are they tied to? And all this. So I don't think it's an exclusionary. We look at just one or the other. I, I, I really would love to see sort of a more complete picture because really there's, you know how U.S. foreign policy is. There's so many competing interests. Farmers want agricultural, you know, things to, you know, the food to go out and be subsidized and so on and export import to pay attention to that. Industry has, and, and industry, car industry, whatever. So there's so much like this. It's just trying to get a sense of how big is this? How much does it matter to the US to adjust its policies? But again, not to the exclusion of, and you're right, the Franco situation is, is, is a great case study before you can really get into a mess on this, but other countries too. It, it was a great burden. Well, how much of a burden? And I find it fascinating. I, I've, I really, your, your point, Percentages of sales going down, export import, then really going into high gear. So all this is all very interesting. Excellent, Jay. Do you have anything more to add, or Mike Dash? You have a point. no. I I I would just uh, I'm, I'm I'm really thankful to Fritz for for uh, for raising it, and I I have come. Uh, the last time I presented at Belfer, I also got comments from Steve Miller asking me to give give a sense of you know the domestic side of the story a bit more prominently. For example, I know about utility providers who also had to be given a lot of subsidies from the US, from the federal government to convince them to go nuclear, because yeah. uh, otherwise they wouldn't, to give some facts and figures. And I think I'll bring that um, in, in the next version of the presentation and the paper, but thank you for it. Thank you. Mike Desch, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Uh, Jada, could I ask you to talk a little bit more about the implications of your argument in terms of the relationship between the strategic rationale uh, for nonproliferation and the sort of 
very interesting political economy story that you're telling. Now, I, I started out a long time ago as somebody who studied uh, U.S. Cold War foreign policy uh, in Latin America and particularly Central America. And there was a, a lot of focus, um, you know, in the literature, uh, largely by historians, on the interrelationship between American business interests and Cold War policy uh, in Central America. So you had, uh, you know, sort of a revolving door from the United Fruit Company uh, into U.S. government and things like that. And the implication was that uh, this was an example of the tail wagging the dog, that the business community was shaping uh, perceptions of uh, strategic interests in the area. Um, and that, you know, that, that could be a story here, um, but it seems to me there are two other stories. You know, one is uh, the U.S. government, uh, you know, promoting uh, the economic interests uh, of uh, its own businesses just because, you know, what's good for business is what's good for the country. Um, but another way to look at it would be, um, you know, sort of parallel courses that, uh, you know, the U.S. government and business interests aligned uh, and, you know, they work together uh, hand in glove, um, but, you know, that that was uh, coincidental. Now, I was thinking with your slide with the declining market share uh, of the U.S. in the light water reactor uh, uh, sales uh, globally, um, that there might be some evidence there to adjudicate, uh, you know, uh, this question, because, you know, it seems to me that the story you told was, we were pushing light water reactors, because the alternatives uh, were uh, reactor systems that were greater proliferation threats. Um, and once the French and the Germans got into the uh, light water reactor, you know, low enriched uranium uh, environment, then the proliferation threat wasn't there. And, you know, the fact that the U.S. Uh, share fell, you know, would suggest that what was ultimately driving this was proliferation. So, I don't know if that's your story, but I, it seems to me that you could put a sharper point by coming down uh, on exactly what you see as the relationship between business and government on this critical national security issue. That, that's such an important question, Michael. I, I really appreciate the question. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sensing there are, there are two questions. Uh, one is the nature and character of business government relations in, in, in my research, what that looked like. And I think that the what was changing or not in the 1970s as the West Germans and the French also joined the fray and they were also selling light water reactors. Um, so the first uh, is, uh, um, my response to the first question is, I find that um, uh, it's, 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 it's primarily the United US government uh, who, who's, who's trying to encourage the businesses to become stakeholders in non-proliferation without actually calling them that. 
Um, so, um, so, and so in, in, the, in the 1950s, during you know, Adams for Peace and thereafter the declassification, we find that the businesses are really excited that they can finally trade in all the know-how that they have produced during the Manhattan projects before they couldn't. Um, now, there were some instances where, because there were several companies, they were not just the big ones like GE, Westinghouse, DuPont, Bechtel, but also the smaller ones. So um, there were some companies that, uh, that actually ended up selling know-how to countries uh, that led to proliferation. And here I'll come back to India again, not because my next book, my, my first book is on India, but because they, they, they really took advantage of the atomic marketplace opening up very early on. And so we find a lot of the, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the pros and cons of that in the Indian case. Um, so for example, right after Adams for Peace, Vitro International uh, sold uh, plutonium reprocessing plant designs to the Indian Atomic Energy Commission. And that's how, that, that's how the Indians were able to put together an, a plutonium reprocessing plant that they used for uh, proliferation, the, the CANDU type reactor, plutonium from that, reprocess it, and then make a device. Um, so, but, and there are other examples where because the United States government was, was willing to put so much money in nuclear uh, on, in the, on the domestic side uh, by giving subsidies to utility providers, because uh, otherwise they were not willing to touch this new technology uh, because they weren't sure if it's gonna be profitable, if it, is, it, is it even viable? Um, because of this, this, this support, this financial support at home and abroad with USAID and Exim Bank loans, uh, we find that bigger companies like GE and Westinghouse actually get very interested in, in this new technology that they can trade in. And so at 50s, we find that there is not a lot of tension there are, there are a few cases like vitro that just get away. Uh, but, but at the time, plutonium reprocessing was not considered to be dangerous, uh, primarily because an understanding had not developed about what, what, is, what are risky technologies, what are not. This was still very new. The marketplace was formulating uh, itself at the time. For example, uh, this was a time when centrifuge technologies were also available. And then it was reclassified in the 60s uh, because it was perceived to be you know, uh, very proliferation pro. Um, so um, the point about business government relations, therefore, is interesting because I find there is more cooperation in the 50s and there is a lot of animosity in the 70s. Uh, and uh, for example, I will say that, uh, uh, you know, uh, this is a time that I did not cover in my talk, but it's in my book. Uh, um, as, as we find the Carter administration cared so much about non-proliferation and they were doing things like MC the International Nuclear Fuel Cycle Evaluation uh, in Vienna, and they, were, they, they had stopped uh, commercial reprocessing in the United States. Um, US, US companies were really upset with the Carter administration, and they felt that this, this, this administration is doing more damage uh, to the industry than any other administration in history. Um, and so we find that actually US companies um, went to Iran at this conference called uh, Persepolis Conference, uh, where, where they uh, were together with the Shah of Iran, who was also upset with non-proliferation of Carter administration, were together just bashing the administration sitting in Iran. Um, and so, I mean, that's an example to illustrate that there was a lot of conflict and animosity in the 70s at, at a time when U.S. government um, was losing market share. There was, more, uh, there was more concern about proliferation, with the India's nuclear explosion, other suppliers are competing more, and we have a we have an administration as a Carter, uh, President Carter, who uh, 
understood nuclear technologies probably more than other presidents because he'd been in the Navy. He was a nuclear engineer by training. Uh, he was really going after non-proliferation. And so that's an example where there was a lot of animals, a lot of conflict. Uh, things improved with the Reagan administration. And I have a chapter coming out, um, I think in May uh, or April next year, uh, which is really when as the Reagan administration or as you know, uh, Reagan has won the election, November 4th, 1980. Uh, and there is, there is just a lot of hope and excitement um, in the US nuclear industry that things will get better. Um, and uh, Reagan keeps a lot of his promises that, you know, that, I mean, the DOE funding is cut, but nuclear is actually, that funding is increased. Um, so I guess this answers your business government relations to an extent because 50s, there is more cooperation. 70s, there's an increased amount of animosity. 80s, there is, there is more uh, appreciation because we find Reagan is a friend of nuclear energy uh, for, for multiple reasons. Um, and so um, it's a shift, it changes really, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's more varied. Um, so I wouldn't say that the tail was wagging the dog the whole time or the US government was just, you know, always supporting businesses and nothing but that. Uh, but I think that's a really important question. Uh, in terms of your second question, uh, the 1970s, you know, as these other suppliers um, who have benefited from cooperation with, you know, with the United States, really, so the French got their light water technology from the Americans, uh, so did the West Germans. So when they start selling, uh, was it really about, was it about proliferation or not? The interesting thing is the French and the West Germans adopt um, two related policies in addition to selling reactors. Uh, first, they, they, they try to sway recipients by providing more aid, just like the United States had done. And they're also sweetening the deals by providing enrichment and reprocessing, uh, which are proliferation tech um, very directly. And so uh, we come across uh, instances of the French uh, selling plutonium reprocessing plant to Pakistan. They don't do it um, because of US pressure, uh, but they try to, and that's really why the Pakistanis were interested in their deal in the first place. Um, we find the West Germans selling reactors to uh, in Brazil and sweetening it with a uranium enrichment technology. The, the, the deal fell through for uh, pressures from the US government and financing the Brazilians uh, were struggling to how to actually going to finance. They also didn't believe the, the, the enrichment tech uh, was sound because it was a new technology. But from the perspective of these suppliers, what they were trying, uh, they were trying everything. They wanted to cut United States uh, edge in the market um, because they know finally they could. So they were, they were doing proliferation risky activities, uh, perhaps as much as the recipients were trying to. Great. Uh, thank you. Okay, um, who's got a question now? Anybody? If not, I'll, I'd love to hear a little more about Oratome. Studied that years ago. I, it, you almost forget about that, that you want, you know, when you learn about that in the past. So I would be curious, you said you could jump in with a point on that. I'd be, I would be interested to find out what, what you have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the part that I, I skipped um, on, on, on that subject was uh, I was trying to connect uh, what's happening at a global level with the IAEA. And I said how the IAEA was, was, was helpful as an institution in crafting this market uh, in, in, in countries that had recently decolonized, jumping into large infrastructure projects. Um, we, I, I find the exact same thing happening in the context of continental Europe. 
Uh, and this is, the, I was going to cite uh, this, uh, uh, this excellent historian, um, Jonathan Helbreich, who had this uh, article in Diplomatic History about the treaty where he basically compared uh, Euratom with the with with uh, Marshall Plan, and he said that uh, that this treaty was basically functioning as an atomic Marshall Plan. That on the one hand, it'll help uh, countries like France and West Germany to create nuclear energy programs, and also a market for for U.S. reactors. I mean, the reason, as I said, light water reactors um, became French technology and West German technology by the seventies. It was all contentious, which. Gabrielle Hecht has written about uh, in her book, Radiance of France, the French were initially uncomfortable uh, accepting light water reactor and American tech as their tech uh, because they were initially into gas graphite, but they took it for economic reasons. Um, so um, so that, that, that was my point about this treaty, 19, also the same time as the IAEA statute. So 1957, Euratom, 1957, IAEA. Uh, so creating a market in continental Europe, US allies, um, and on the one hand in, in the decolonized world. Uh, but thank you for that question. And I, I, I really recommend this excellent article. It's a few years old, uh, Jonathan Helmreich. You may have read it already, uh, but it's truly excellent. Um, thank you very much. It looks like Alex Lin has a hand up. Great. Hi, Jada. thanks for your talk. So I'm going to extend your, the core intuition of your argument in two ways. And I was wondering if you could answer uh, some of these uh, more the, the sort of the exploratory questions, I guess. So moving away from the nuclear level, does your argument apply for conventional arms sales and transfers? That's the first question. The second question is, there's a lot of chatter about the political economy and security research agenda, and obviously Boston University is a big hub of that. So uh, just curious, what other empirical areas would you say that we traditionally think as of being dri driven largely or purely by a security logic but in fact has an economic logic as well. So in other words, if I were to pick up this on this political economy security research agenda, where should I go next? Um, thanks so much, Alex. Um, I, I wish my colleagues, Kaya Shilda and Rosella Kazlinski were here who direct that initiative, uh, political economy of security. Um, they would say everywhere, right? Um, they, they, their, their position would be, and anything and everything related to uh, national security has a political economy story. Uh, but so I, I would let them answer that question. But I think your first question is about, you know, how much can I extrapolate from the nuclear to the non-nuclear domain? Um, I would say that the core intuition would apply in, in where, 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 wherever, um, whenever we talk about technologies where the United States has preponderance, that is the United States is the source of that technology. And that could be you know, various kinds. I mean, there was a time when, um, when we considered that IT was the United States uh, tech edge, right? And now, now there are other hubs coming up. So I don't work on that. So I will leave the experts to discuss. But my, you're talking about intuition. I would say whichever technology the United States has, has an edge in, and is able to export it to serve foreign policy goals. Uh, and that's served by also financial uh, support of the government predominantly because, because if the government is not the main actor for financial support, strategic interests may not necessarily be served. Uh, and that's why I think um, the, the role of government in financing is important to connect that the strategic end uh, with, um, with, uh, with, 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 the, with the business activities. Uh, so that would be, I'm not, that's not a very tangible uh, example I'm giving you, but that's, it's, I'm speaking in abstraction. So I would say, you know, where, and so I, at the end, 
of my talk, the implication I was talking about financial and tech preponderance. So um, I've been asked this question at Managing the Atom uh, at, at Belfort, and I think I, I probably saw you on a Zoom screen in, uh, at Belfort for many of the seminars last year. Um, so I, I, I got this question about, you know, what next, right? Uh, if light water reactor edge is lost, if Export-Import Bank and USAID is no longer the top uh, uh, actors in the financial, wh where, where do we go next? What is the future of US non-proliferation policy? And so my answer was that maybe maybe it's FinTech, right? May, may, maybe it's not non-proliferation, maybe it's counter-proliferation. Uh, that you know, there, we can't really have uh, this whole structure of creating a market, controlling the market, then we probably just have to go after the threats and just, uh, Wag them all wherever we see them and whatever technology allows us to do that. So maybe the future of non-proliferation is counter-proliferation because of the tech that the US government has access to. Um, anyway, so those are really you know, broad ideas I'm, I'm sharing with you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. That's a great, great question. Um, hopefully we can explore that kind of thing over dinner as well. Um, I saw Theo had a hand up. Hi, Professor. Uh, I was just curious for your take on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Do you see that as their take on light water capitalism and the way that it creates techno-economic uh, dependence? And uh, if so, through your lens of uh, capitalism and uh, empire, can they rewrite history and succeed where we failed? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And really, it's just amazing. I, truly, truly, uh, truly ins insightful. Um, so I, I find that, you know, at present, if I, if, I, if I look around and I see who are the main exporters of power reactors and how are they doing what they're doing, and I see the Russians and the Chinese doing something very similar. That is, they're selling power reactors. Um, and right now, by the way, most, almost everybody is selling light water reactors because uh, the Soviets, later the Russians, also switched from you know, the, the dreaded RBMK reactor, which I'm sure you, you came across in the series Chernobyl, and they moved to VVR reactors in the 80s. Um, and uh, the Chinese got their model from the French who got their model from the Americans. So everybody's selling light water reactors. Um, so I find that the, the Chinese and the Russians doing something very similar to what the United States was able to do at the very beginning, 50s and 60s, and that is sell power reactors and give a large financial package where the country, the recipient country in question doesn't have to worry about paying back in the next 10 years. And you know, um, as you might imagine, if you, you study policy, you study foreign policy security, the way policy decisions are made, they're just here and now. No government wants to know what they have, what's, what's gonna happen 10 years later, right? They're not gonna be in power. Um, or, you know, the chairman in per person is probably not gonna be around. And so we find that um, a lot of these recipient countries are making choices where they're accepting the Russian offer or they're accepting the Chinese offer because they don't have to pay right away. The Chinese are expanding a nuclear power in Pakistan, for example. Um, they are building uh, power reactors in Pakistan. They also helped Pakistan develop a bomb in the 70s and 80s. So they have a proliferation angle. But right now they're putting a lot of money, financial um, package that is complementing their light water reactor sale in Pakistan. Um, if I remember correctly, Russia is a major actor in Turkey. Uh, that they made a big offer there. We find the South Koreans doing also quite a lot, but from you know from U.S. strategic interests, I think the the fact that the Russians and the Chinese are doing uh, adopting this sort of a light water capitalism in the 21st century does raise 
cause for concern, uh, what that means for US um, non-proliferation goals. Uh, given the fact we're talking about um, Turkey, that you know that the president had said, I think a year ago that Turkey should, uh, he didn't preclude uh, the possibility that Turkey might have some nuclear weapons, right? Um, so I think it does give a lot of concern for for US uh, for US strategic goals uh, in in the world. But thank you for that question, Tio. Truly excellent. Great, thank you very much. Um, anybody else want to unmute and ask away? I'll, I'll interject something then. Um, what about the role of climate change? Is that picking up supply and demand in different ways these days for nuclear reactors? Um, it's um, it's uh, it's actually quite interesting um, because uh, it's um, I, I find that throughout history, um, especially the seventies onward. Um, on the one hand, that there, 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 was, um, there was demand for nuclear energy as clean energy um, in some quarters, in some countries. So not just, not, not that everybody in that country wanted nuclear energy as clean energy, uh, that they, there were some pro-nuclear energy lobbies. And on the other hand, there were, um, there were anti-nuclear um, environmentalists primarily who had, who had you know, read and had become very concerned about accidents like Three Mile Island. I mean, What's what's interesting about the '70s is that we tend to think, or at least you know, in my experience, reading the secondary literature, um, one tends to think that it's really Three Mile Island of '79 that killed um, the U.S. nuclear industry and Reagan administration trying to revive it, and did not really work uh, because uh, it was it was just that accident that uh, created that boosted an anti-nuclear movement. Um, what I find that it's actually far more complex and that the nuclear industry was struggling um, from the early 1970s onward. Um, now, and I'm, 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 I'm talking about accident because I want to talk about a contemporary example and the climate change question will make a lot of sense in that context. And that is um, throughout the early 2000s, uh, nuclear energy was uh, promoted by the industry as this answer to climate change. And uh, the industry dubbed it as nuclear renaissance. And uh, that also a, a very clear policy outcome of that was uh, the US-India uh, civil nuclear agreement. And I'm bringing India constantly back because the, the, this, it's just, uh, you, can, you can understand US non-proliferation just by looking at US-India interactions on nuclear energy per se because we find that the United States made an exception for India to engage in civil nuclear trade. And the point is that India will spend a lot of money in expanding nuclear energy. The only reason that didn't happen of the nuclear renaissance was going to be not just India, other countries as well, um, like Philippines, for example, um, but that didn't happen because of Fukushima. So uh, the whole um, bubble of nuclear renaissance early 2000s went bust uh, with, um, with, with, uh, with the accident in March, 2011. Uh, and now that we are about 10 years from Fukushima, I'm, I'm coming across a lot of uh, uh, op-eds. Once again, you know, COP26 just ended. So there were a lot of op-eds about how nuclear energy would be the answer to climate change. Um, so in as far as, as, far as um, uh, rhetoric goes, from the nuclear uh, industry and at the PR level, I see a clear uh, link that nuclear energy is an answer to climate change. And that is busted from time to time by major accidents that, uh, that grab the world's attention for right reasons. 
Um, but uh, as far as supply and demand is concerned, uh, as long as the governments that are selling are not able to fund most of it or give large loans that uh, sort of um, write off the possibility of having to pay immediately for the recipients, I don't see a lot of a bright future for the nuclear industry. And so um, I said this in the middle of my talk that there is no company that is, that is a nuclear company because nuclear companies almost always go bankrupt um, because they need a lot of state support uh, because nuclear itself is not profitable. It can't survive without subsidies at home and aid and assistance <clears throat> abroad. Um, and so climate change, nuclear energy, I think will, will be an important issue uh, for the industry because it uh, creates the possibility of larger demand, but to actually make the deals happen, uh, there needs to be a, there needs to be financial packages where Russia and China, for all for all the wrong reasons, is definitely doing much better um, than uh, than the U.S. government. Uh, and as a result, uh, I don't see a lot of shift because of climate change and the supply demand side, demand story of light water capitalism. Thank you. Um, anybody else have a question? Ben, is that you unmuting? Yeah, that is me unmuting. Excellent. Um, thank you, uh, Professor, for your talk. I. I want to kind of flip the question then, as you just said, you've talked about this idea that, um, you know, the nuclear industry is a bankrupt industry. It's, it's unwise for a corporation to go in uh, solely seeking to enter the nuclear market. In that sense, do you foresee um, the need, therefore they rely on uh, government funding? Do you, is the same true in the opposite case? Does the government need today, does the government rely on and need these private corporations to continue to engage in um, this form of light water capitalism to pursue these uh, non-proliferation measures? Uh, or do you foresee in the future the, the, the private sector becoming uh, less necessary in these efforts? Just kind of a general, I'm just kind of curious because I, I, I couldn't help but notice, I, I'm an engineering student. I was looking at that, your, one of your early slides in the presentation and I was, I was struck by the number of companies that I guess I hadn't realized were involved in um, producing uh, nuclear reactors, light water nuclear re reactors, and who are by extension a part of this sort of um, non-proliferation endeavor. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, thanks for that question, Ben. Um, so is the reverse true? So the nuclear industry needs the government and uh, does the US government need the nuclear industry? Um, um, I, I would say not, not nearly as much. And I, I would say you could say that, you know, this is part of the problem. Uh, why, as I was responding to Alex when I said that perhaps the future of uh, non-proliferation is counter-proliferation because from US policymakers perspective, light water capitalism, the way it worked in the fifties and sixties and early seventies, is just not, it's just not gonna work anymore. Um, because of a host of reasons. So it, it's not just that the US government is not willing to provide that low, th those, those large loans. It's just uh, there's more competition. There are various kinds of uh, interests at play for the recipients. And it just seems that this, this may not be the right way or, or the more um, effective way. That's what I mean by right. Uh, effective way to attain non-proliferation goals. Um, so... Um, but then the, the, the broader ramifications of your question is, does the US government need private corporations? Yes, of course. Um, so even if it's not nuclear, then obviously the, the US government uh, needs 
U.S. private corporations just as much the private corporations need the U.S. government. And there are always tensions. Like it's, we, well, we, so, some, some people who uh, study business government relations, especially historians of capitalism who are a bit on the left, tend to assume that there's always collusion. Uh, but the, the reality is that there is, there is cooperation, there is conflict, um, and there's tension. It's just, it's just like any relationship, really. Um, and especially in, in, in a policy realm where there are multiple interests. And even within the businesses, uh, within a certain company, there will be multiple interests, even, even if it's the same recipient country. So I think um, with a nuclear angle, uh, perhaps US policymakers, I, I would say 80s onward. And the reason is even when Reagan administration gave so much funding to the nuclear industry, uh, the nuclear industry could not bounce back. And from then onwards, we find that you know, with, with Bush and thereafter, uh, I really stopped with, um, at Reagan, I, I'll, I'll be doing more research on the Bush. I'm going to end, end that. My book will end there. I find that th there is a clear understanding that uh, this this is not going to work. We might put a lot of money in nuclear. It's just not going to work. So even after the Reagan administration tried, the fact that the industry can bounce back, um, it convinced U.S. policymakers thereafter that we're just not going to put any more money in this. Um, and so they put some money with the with the uh, the U.S. India civil nuclear agreement, but that was not so much money as opposed to making exceptions and multilateral organizations. So it's politically costly, but not financially costly to make those exceptions that they did in 2008. Um, so anyway, that's a really long answer, but I hope it answered uh, parts of your question. Of course, yes. No, yeah. My intuition was that there was, and there will continue to be a reliance, a government private a reliance, especially with the infusion of private contractors and the conventional military aspects of the, of the US military. Um, but I was just right. kind of curious if that sort of trend extends to the the nuclear realm. So I appreciate the answer. Thank yeah. you, Ben. Ben, it'll be interesting to hear an answer to your question from our next speaker, the business guy who's had 35 years in the business, and uh, see what he says about this partnership. But you know, nuclear could well be a special case. I could see that because um, the fuel issues are so sensitive, and I think the contract, some of the language that Jay pointed out you know, had all these restrictive language in there, special regulations that we imposed as part of our deals. Um, so fun times. Anybody else got a last question to go? All right, or real quick, fusion, yeah. en fusion energy. Any, any thought on that? <laughs> um, I, I have been, you know, because of uh, my, my students uh, who always write op-eds on, uh, on, on small modular reactors and fusion energy being the answer uh, to climate change. Uh, I am I, aware of the, of the optimism that there is uh, from, from, from the industry uh, when it comes to uh, these new kinds of technologies uh, related to uh, in, in the nuclear realm. Uh, but uh, as far as, well, I, as far as I, I, I think that once again, even with fusion energy or, or SMRs, like all of us will have a, you know, a small modular reactor in our basement, all of that will also needs to be, would need to be underwritten uh, by, yeah. by some kind of financial package. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't say much about nuclear safety, uh, but uh, all these nuclear reactors, say SMRs, could, could go very wrong. And there could be radioactive leakages. Do we really want to handle that in our basements? Uh, so there's the whole question of public health um, that my project is not about. Uh, but I think we need to take into consideration when we talk about these, uh, the you know the future futuristic, perhaps not that futuristic because SMRs exist, 
they're just not, not produced at a commercial level for where we can buy them. Um, uh, but uh, I think we need to be careful about, you know, how far we can take nuclear uh, with these futuristic technologies, but public health is a, is a major concern. Um, and then, then the financial side, it still needs to be underwritten. The financial side is so important, even for the futuristic technology, if not for non-proliferation, for our consumption. Thanks. Thank you very much. Anybody Thank you, else? Fred. Well, hearing nothing, we'll uh, take a pause for those of us coming to dinner. We'll meet back at about uh, 6.05, 6.07, something like that, at the link that Amy uh, sent us. And for the rest of you, look forward to seeing you at our next talk. Um, and thanks for coming to this one. Let's have a big round of applause for Jay. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash. Or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.